All throughout the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus, he spoke about a particular moment. Jesus called it the hour, in quotes. Sometimes he called it the time. If you recall earlier, Jesus in his earthly ministry, when they run out of wine, his mother comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, we ran out of wine. And this is how Jesus responds. My time has not yet come. It sounds a little obnoxious, I have to admit, especially since Jesus is talking to his mother. I mean, imagine your mother coming to you and saying, hey, can you do the dishes? And you say, my time has not yet come. Uh, How pretentious would that sound? But Jesus, he always spoke about this time, this time. Further, when he talked about this time, he described it as a glorious moment. He talks about when this time comes, God's glory is going to be revealed. He says, when this time comes, the Son of Man is going to be glorified. Or elsewhere, he says, when the time comes, when the hour comes, the Son of Man is going to be lifted high. God's glory is going to be revealed He he speaks of this time as glorious. And all throughout the Gospels, Jesus, his teachings and his actions, they pointed to this amazing climax when God's full glory will be shown for all the world to see. And finally, here we are in chapter 19. The time has come. This time that he spoke of has finally arrived. But, but against expectations and unlike the hopes that the people had, God's glory is revealed. It's shown. But it's shown through the cross. Jesus said he was going to be lifted up. But his hearers had no idea that Jesus was going to be lifted up on a cross. Today, we are at the passage, John 19, when this time has come and Jesus is glorified, and his glorification is through the cross. And I want to explore just three responses to how people see the cross, how they respond to the cross. I want to see three responses. The first is disappointment. The second is mockery. And the third is faith. So we'll go through these pretty quickly. First, disappointment. The most common response to Jesus' climactic act is disappointment. See, this is what the masses, or this is what the people are actually going through. You know, it was less than a week ago when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey right before the Passover, and what were the people doing? Crowds of people came out, and they were hailing him as king. They cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they laid their clothes on their floor so that Jesus' donkey would not walk on the ground. They hailed him as king. But when they realized that Jesus had no intention of being their earthly king, they become disappointed. They become disappointed, and they quickly turn on him. I mean, Peter also, 
right? Before he denied Jesus, as we saw last week in John 18, Peter also, he was willing and ready to fight. He was ready to go all in for Jesus. But when he sees Jesus, when he sees his Lord willingly and submissively being captured and going to his death in chains, Peter, he can't believe it. Peter is disappointed. Wait, Jesus, is this what you were supposed to do? Is this your glorification that you spoke of? He's disappointed. I know it sort of reminds me of uh, episode one, The Phantom Menace in Star Wars, you know, the Star Wars series, right? Episode one, The Phantom Menace, it came out in 1999, and uh, I think at that point it had been close to 16 years since the last uh, Star Wars came out. And, you know, the Lucas Films and, and you know, the, the, the producers, they, they built up the hype, right? They said, yes, the new Star Wars is finally coming out. And they built up the hype. They, they re-released, you know, the first three movies in VHS. And they ran all these ads and all these trailers. And people were going crazy. The new Star Wars, the new Star Wars. But when the film came out, the film flopped. It was a disappointment. I mean, it was so bad that even a person who never watched a single Star Wars movie, me, <laughs> knows how bad it was. Uh, people were really disappointed, especially after all the marketing that it did. You know, before Good Friday, before Jesus went to the cross, people were excited. I mean, Jesus, he really hyped up this moment. I mean, Jesus was his own hype man. He said, listen, I'm going to be glorified. The time is coming. I'm going to be lifted up. God's glory is going to be shown. He really hyped this up. And the people were excited. Something is going to happen. We are going to see God's glory. But when the time had come, all they got was a cross. And with that came disappointment and dashed hope. You see, the people, the reason why they were disappointed was because they had these false expectations of who Jesus is and was. You see, the people's disappointment was rooted in false expectations of Jesus. It was based on a misunderstanding of who Jesus was and why he came. You know, for those of you who go through disappointments, for those of you who are at times upset at God and disappointed at Jesus, I mean, you have to wonder. You have to wonder and think. Is your disappointment in Jesus rooted in false expectations of who he is? You know, maybe it's time that you and Jesus have a sit-down, have a one-on-one, -on -one, have a talk, and you do one of those TDRs, right? For those of you older people who don't know what that means, TDR means let's define the relationship, or DTR, I'm sorry, define the relationship, DTR. See, I'm old, I don't know, I messed that up. I had it prepared, I, I looked it up, and I still mess it up, okay. This is what happens when you pretend to, uh, to know. But maybe it's time that we have one of those sit-downs and define the relationship with Jesus. You know, what do you hope and expect of Jesus?
What is it that you want from Jesus? What do you want out of this relationship with Jesus? And it's not that Jesus is non-committal. It's not that he is non-committal. No, that's not it, right? And it's not that Jesus says, you know what, I'll do all these things, but no, he, he doesn't actually step up. No, it actually, it's not that we have too high expectations of Jesus. It's actually we have too low expectations of who Jesus is. Or as C.S. Lewis says, he says, God, he finds that our desires are just too weak. It's not that our desires for him are too strong, but it's actually too weak. What we expect from Jesus is actually much lower than what it is supposed to be. You know, Jesus' mission on earth was not to satisfy whatever cravings and desires and wants that we have. The mission of Jesus was to bring you into an inseparable relationship with the Father. And Jesus does this with the cross. You know, if you want Jesus to make you rich, you don't need Jesus. You have other people to do that. If you want Jesus to be, make you successful, you don't need Jesus. Other people can do that. If you want to be accepted in worldly terms, you don't need Jesus. There are so many other ways to do that. It's not that we have too high of an expectation for Jesus. It's that we have too low of an expectation for Jesus. We underestimate and undervalue what Jesus does. If I can put it more simply, it's this. Jesus is not our babysitter. He's not that babysitter who just comes and gives you everything you want. Jesus' aim is not just to get the job done. Jesus' aim is not just to fill the time and to appease you until the parents return. No, Jesus is the older brother whose aim is to care and to provide in every single way. Jesus' goal is to bring the wayward sibling back. Jesus' aim is to bring that sibling into the family. You know, if you want temporary happiness... Or ultimately, if you want to be the God of your life and you want a subservient God, Jesus is not the person. And this morning, we have to ask, does the cross disappoint you? Are you disappointed in the cross? Does it dash your hopes and your dreams? Or does the cross satisfy you? We see disappointment is the number one response. And you can hear the rumors going around throughout Galilee and Jerusalem. Oh my gosh, what a disappointment. Jesus, what a disappointment. All this hope, all these expectations. What is he doing? Like the Sixers. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> The second response is mockery. <laughs> Sorry, that was, that was not intended. The second response that we find from the people is mockery. While some people, while most people are disappointed, others just plain outright, their response is mockery. We saw this a bit last week, but we see Jesus here being mocked as a king. The Romans say this, okay, sure, Jesus, you're going to reveal God's glory, Okay, you're going to be lifted up. All right, we'll make sure that that happens. 
And so what do they do? When they crucify Jesus, they mock him. They dress him in a purple robe to make fun of him like he's a king. They put a crown on him, but it's a crown of thorns. They place a sign above his head that reads, King of the Jews. They mock him. Okay, sure, Jesus, you're going to be glorified. Let's see. You know, the cross, we, we some, sometimes misunderstand it because we're so many years removed from this form of capital punishment. But the cross was the Roman way of not just killing people, but it was the Roman way of humiliating people. The cross was a public act. It took place in broad daylight right outside the city gates so that anyone who came, who entered and exited, saw the crucifixion, they saw the person, and they mocked the man. You know, in B.C. 71, there was a uh, Roman gladiator by the name of Spartacus. I know there's a TV show. I'm not sure if the TV show is based upon this this man in, in this story. But Spartacus was a man uh, who was a gladiator who led a slave revolt against the Romans. He, he led a slave revolt, and after years of fighting, they eventually lost the war. And many, many slaves were killed. But of the remaining 6,000, 6,000 slaves, they were captured, and they were all crucified. All 6,000. All of them were crucified along the road along the road from Rome to Capua. I mean, just imagine, right? You start from Philadelphia, and there's a crucified man, and every 40 yards from Philadelphia, you move down, you move south, there's another crucified man. And every 40 yards until you get down to Washington, D.C. 6,000 people were crucified. Along that road, you had 6,000 people hanging on a cross, a half-dead, half-live corpse, naked, crawling with mice, insects, maggots, and roaches. And that was the Roman way of showing forth their power. That was the Roman way of saying, this is who we are. It was the Roman way of saying, we are superior, you are inferior. It was the Roman way of saying, Caesar is king, he is Lord, not your gods. And this is what they did to Jesus. Sure, you want to show your glory? Your time has come? Okay, we'll hang you on a piece of timber, naked during the daytime, so that people can see what a failure you are. The people in power, the Romans, the Jews, they mocked Jesus. They mocked him. But the third response that I'd like to see, there's disappointment, there's mockery. But the third response is a response in faith. We see it in glimpses throughout the story. We see it in the beloved disciple who was there by the cross. We see it in the women who are there waiting at the cross. And we see it to a lesser degree with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who comes to bury Jesus' dead body. It seems that these people who are standing by the cross, it seems that these people who are waiting with Jesus, they understand that beneath the blood, the pain, and the suffering, beneath that veil was the full 
revelation of God's glory. You know, Mark records something very, very interesting. Mark records that when Jesus is being crucified, you know, the Roman soldiers are there keeping watch, and the person in charge was a centurion, a person in charge of a hundred soldiers. He was standing there keeping watch, making sure that this execution was done well. And as he stands there and as he sees Jesus, the mocked king, being crucified, when Jesus breathes his last breath, he sees glory. And this Roman centurion, whose job it was to see that this crucifixion goes through, he says, truly this man was the Son of God. You know, the Roman soldiers, I just have to let you know, they were numb to crucifixions. It's not like, you know, us, if we were to see a capital punishment or if we were to see something gory and gruesome, you know, online, we would sort of cringe and, and, and our hearts would, it, we would feel something deep, but that's not what happened. The Roman soldiers, they were so used to seeing this sight. You know, at a certain point in, 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 this, in the, the Roman Jewish history, Rome had to import timber because of all the trees that were in Jerusalem, they had cut down to crucify people. They crucified people all the time, and they ran out of wood. They, they actually had to import wood. They were numb to this. But there was something different about Jesus' death. It wasn't a sign of humiliation and defeat. But Jesus' cross was a sign of victory and it was a sign of glory. Do you get that? You know, this glory that Jesus spoke of, this time when God's full glory is going to be revealed, that actually takes place at the cross. The cross, the bloodied, the violent, the shameful cross, is the ultimate public display of God's infinite power, His might, His strength, His wisdom, His mercy, His justice, and His love. If you want a real clear picture of God and His glory, if you want to see what God is like, the clearest picture of that is the cross. You know, there are things in our lives that function in a real revelatory way, right? It reveals who we are. For some people in the West, it's a piece of paper. It's a piece of paper uh, with all these Latin words on it with a bunch of signatures. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's a diploma, right? People hang their diplomas on the wall. Why? They hang their diplomas on the wall as a sense of pride, as a sense of accomplishment, it's a, it's a sense of association with a larger educational institution. And that diploma tells a story, right? It reveals something about who you are. It tells a story of where you were during your formative years. It tells you, you know, what discipline that you committed yourself to for many, many years. Perhaps it might also point to the people in your lives that supported you during this time in college or grad school. That piece of paper shows what you've endured and how you are a member of this educational institution. This piece of paper reveals who you are. 
There are other things in your life, maybe. It might be an item, a picture, a vehicle, important documents. I mean, larger cities have it too. You know, New York has the large buildings, Wall Street, that signify money and wealth and capitalism. Philadelphia has Benjamin Franklin or, or the, the, the Liberty Bell that signifies freedom or Rocky, the great underdog. You have Florida, Disney that signifies joy and hope and, and LA, that ha, you know, and California that has Hollywood. There are all these things that represent the character, the history, the nature. It reveals what that place is about. What is it for God? What reveals God the most accurately and in the most clearest way. It's the cross. The cross. You know, strange, we've become numb to it. Imagine if you were an outsider and that you had no experience of Christianity. Maybe you didn't grow up in the West, and so Christianity and its teachings are so foreign to you. And imagine you walk into a church. Imagine you walk here. And the church service begins with a bunch of singing. Songs are good. They sound good. But what are the songs about? It's about a cross, a crucified man, a bloody cross. I mean, even some of the joyful songs that we sing at church, right? Yeah, the music's upbeat and it's great. The drums are going. But we're actually singing about a bloodied man. You understand how ironic that is? How strange that is? I mean, if you were to create a movement, if you were to create a religious movement, what would you, what would you make the center of it? Right? Wouldn't you want it something to be a strong, something impeccable, something persuasive, something that has a lot of pull? I mean, like the Liberty Bell. Isn't that great? I mean, that bell that signifies freedom. For the Christian community, it's the cross. The cross is the clearest and the best picture of who God is. It shows his perfect wisdom, his perfect love. It shows his perfect judgment. It shows how God dealt with the problem of sin. That's why for those who understand this, for those of you who are Christian, that's why the cross is everything. The cross is our song. The cross is our boast. The cross is our righteousness. The cross is our joy. Now, Paul, later on in Galatians 6.14, says this, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is an absurd statement. This is coming from a cultural elite. Paul, who was well-educated. Paul, who was a Pharisee. Paul, who was a Roman citizen. Paul, who had everything. But he says, far be it from me to conclude with um, just this illustration uh, of the late, great uh, Billy Graham. When Billy Graham was a young man, uh, in August of 1955, he was invited to speak. He was invited to speak uh, to England, uh, to speak to Cambridge, to the students of Cambridge University, St. Mary's in Cambridge. And uh, when he was invited, people, um, 
they, they were really upset at him. Uh, it's a well-known story um, and told in many, many different ways, but uh, I'm, I'm picking this story up from Ken Hughes um, in one of his books. But he says, Billy Graham, when he was invited to preach at Cambridge University, uh, people hated that. Some even wrote uh, to the Times that Billy Graham's approach would be unthinkable before a university audience. He said Billy Graham would be laughed out of court. He would be laughed at. And you know, Billy Graham himself, who was not really a learned man, was actually very nervous about this. He, he writes this. This is a letter that Billy Graham writes to John Stott, uh, a very, very famous preacher in England at that time. Billy Graham says this, I've been deeply concerned and in much thought about our Cambridge mission this autumn. He says this, I don't know that I've ever felt more inadequate and totally unprepared for a mission. As I think over the possibility for messages, I realize how shallow and how weak my presentations are. In fact, Billy Graham writes, I was so overwhelmed with my unpreparedness that I almost decided to cancel my appearance. But because plans have gone so far, perhaps it's best to go through with it. This is coming from a man, Billy Graham, who has preached in front of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands at this point. And when he has to preach in front of Cambridge University students, he says, I'm afraid. I don't think I can do it. But I have to because it's already been planned. He arrives in England at the time, and before the meeting, he gets to sit down with C.S. Lewis. And, you know, great C.S. Lewis, in his very, uh, you know, English-British way, says this, hey, Billy Graham, we're excited that you're here, but I just want to let you know, you have a lot of critics. <laughs> okay, what a great way, what a great way, C.S. Lewis. He says, you know, a lot of people are, you know, criticizing you. And so Billy Graham, he begins this revival, this meeting. University students are there, the professors are all there, ready to hear, you know, who is this Billy Graham guy? We're smarter than him, we're better than him. And Billy Graham, in this feeling of unpreparedness, feeling that he doesn't measure up, feeling that he doesn't belong in this setting, he starts to lecture to them. He starts reasoning with them. Yeah, he starts talking philosophy with them. And Billy Graham writes, those first few days were brutal. It was tough because he wasn't getting through. The final day, he feels as though the Spirit is just compelling him just to preach the cross. And he says, in the power of the Spirit, that's what he did. He stood up there in front of thousands, and he just talked about the cross. No philosophy, no ethics, nothing of that sort. He just talked about the bloody cross, the violent cross and how a just God dealt with the problem of sin through the cross of Jesus. And there on that night, as these intellectual elitists, when they heard the message of the cross, the record shows that about 400 people came forth to faith in Christ. 
I don't know exactly what you are going through. I don't know where all of you are at. I don't know what situation you're in. I don't know what disappointment and trouble you are facing. But the cross of Jesus, that is enough for you. The cross of Jesus is enough for you. If you are in search of salvation, the cross of Jesus is that. If you are in search of joy, the cross of Jesus is that. If you are in search of meaning, the cross of Jesus is that. If you are in search of purpose, the cross is that. As we read through this story, which might sound or feel like a tragic ending, this man who talked about a glorious revelation, we get the cross. And this cross is the clearest picture of who God is. Let us glory in it. Let us boast in it. Let us cling to the cross this morning. Join me in prayer.